As investors become more selective about what they own, we'll tell you about one strategy within the factor investing category that's benefiting. Also coming up, ETF strategies for reducing that tax bill. Paul Bayaki with SSNC Alps Advisors joins us right after this. Welcome to the program. I'm Thalia Hayden. It's great to see you again. Be sure to subscribe to ETF Guide TV and post thoughts in the comment section below. We're pleased to have Paul Bayaki with SSNC Alps Advisors joining us right now. Paul, great to see you as usual. Nice to see you again, Thalia. So, factors are broad, persistent forces that historically drive returns of stocks, bonds, and other assets. And the quality factor seems to be aligning with investors' appetite to be more selective. Now, the Alps O'Shares U.S. Quality Dividend ETF and the Alps O'Shares U.S. Small Cap Quality Dividend ETF both screen for companies with strong balance sheets and profitability. So, how do these ETFs work and how are they used inside a diversified portfolio? So they're fairly simple in their approach. So OUSA, which is the large cap version of the OShares ETFs offered by SSNC Alps Advisors, focuses on the top 500 stocks by market cap in the United States. And that's their selection universe. And then OUSM looks at the 2,500 companies or so after those top 500 companies. So it's a nice clean break between large and SMID caps. And then once you've delineated between those two market cap buckets, you ultimately call down that universe further by focusing on companies with high ROA or high return on assets, companies with low leverage as measured by net debt to EBITDA, companies who are growing their dividends faster than their counterparts, and then companies also with relatively low volatility or lower standard deviations, if you will. And so the idea is, is you're taking a universe, in the case of OUSA, large caps, in the case of OUSM, SMID caps, and chopping it down to a more manageable, narrower list of names that is focused on companies who are able to generate strong profitability on their asset base, do so without incurring a tremendous amount of leverage, have dividends and are growing their dividends, and don't have a lot of relative volatility compared to their peers. And in the case of both OUSA and OUSM, there's also a specific exclusion of sectors like energy, materials, and real estate because ultimately materials and energy can be sectors whose fundamentals are volatile and real estate, which is a sector that a lot of people typically invest in as a separate asset class in many cases. And so from a, the perspective of market exposures, factor exposures, these are quality products at their core and quality as a factor, at least historically, is a pocket of the market that investors have focused on in times of economic tumult, in times where there are concerns about the growth trajectory of the marketplace and, interestingly, as it relates to the current market context, potentially higher borrowing costs for companies who have a lot of leverage, who don't generate a lot of return on their asset base, and who might be beholden to higher borrowing costs in the future.
And Paul, this one just came out. Research in a recent ETF spotlight noted the strong relative performance of the Alps International Sector Dividend Dogs ETF. And that point was made that dividends and valuations matter. So can you please speak to that? Well, we certainly believe that's true. And if you look so far at 2023, it hasn't necessarily been borne out by the market. Value has underperformed growth rather soundly so far in 2023, but we do think valuations matter. And in the international space, we think it matters even more. And when you think about the U.S. relative to developed ex-U.S., which of course is a sandbox that IDOG focuses on, you typically have higher dividend yields in the ex-U.S. segment of the market, EFA, if you will, relative to the United States. And at least from a relative valuation perspective, we've seen that those ex-U.S. developed markets are trading at lower multiples, price to earnings and the like, than the domestic market. And so on a go-forward basis where we've seen not just the U.S. Fed, but other monetary policies around the world converging toward more hawkishness and perhaps looking for a reason to pivot and turn the other direction, at least historically, when you're in a rising interest rate environment, when you're in an environment where valuations can be impacted by higher borrowing costs and specifically a higher discount rate on cash flows in the future, we feel like your starting point of valuations matters and dividends do truly matter. And so what IDOG does, like its domestic counterpart SDOG and what its emerging counterpart EDOG do, is look at the highest yielding stocks at each annual reconstitution and give you explicit exposure to high yielding stocks, which by nature are also relatively on a value growth basis at the end of the value spectrum as opposed to the growth spectrum. And switching gears a bit, the energy sector is undergoing a massive shift to fossil-based systems, including oil, natural gas, and coal, to renewable energy sources like wind and solar, as well as lithium-ion batteries. SS&C Alps has energy ETFs covering all these areas. So how can investors and financial advisors make sure they don't miss this massive global trend? Well, this is actually one of my favorite topics, the idea of this energy transition as one of the big mega trends for investors to focus on and to think about over the course of the next 25 years or so. And just to put a stat in front of this, the IEA in their Path to Net Zero report, which is, of course, the global goal of trying to get to net zero by 2050, has posited that we're going to spend upwards of $150 trillion, with a T dollars undergoing that massive transition required to get us to net zero globally. But importantly, that doesn't mean that tomorrow we're going to have everyone driving EVs globally. It doesn't mean that tomorrow all of our electricity is going to be met by wind, solar, and other renewable energy sources. In fact, we couldn't handle from a grid perspective, from an infrastructure perspective, and from an overall economic perspective, a transition of that sort that quickly. And so 25 years is a long period of time, and between now and then, we certainly will see investment, not just private, but also public investment directed toward EV adoption, toward batteries or storage technology, to renewable energy projects like wind, like solar. But we'll also see, as we do right now, a lot of electricity generated by natural gas. We'll, uh, we'll see a lot of cars powered by gasoline for the foreseeable future, not just here, but in the emerging world. And as a result, we're going to need a lot of natural gas. We're going to need a lot of crude oil. And ideally, those would be sourced from places without a tremendous amount of national security risk. Importantly, the 
pockets of energy that are fundamental to the economy now, energy infrastructure, pipelines that move crude oil from production to consumption, pockets of pipelines that move natural gas from production to consumption are not only critical now, just in terms of how our economy currently functions, but will be in the future as we not only pivot toward more EVs and therefore a higher demand for electricity and therefore in theory more natural gas demand domestically, we're also rapidly expanding our export capacity for liquefied natural gas, which is another outlet for U.S production of natural gas. So when we think about the next 25 years, we try not to think about it in binary terms, legacy energy, fossil fuel energy versus renewable energy. We think about it as this really interesting mix that will evolve over time. And so investors that we talk to, advisors that we talk to, often think about ENFR and AMLP, or Energy Infrastructure Pipeline Strategies, XLE, so an energy sector ETF, as well as a renewable energy ETF like ACES, and perhaps even commodities-based exposures that focus on the real inputs to some of these transitions, because batteries require a tremendous amount of nickel. EVs require a tremendous amount of copper, nickel. The grid infrastructure improvements are going to require a tremendous amount of copper. And then that's not getting into the rare earths, whether it be cobalt or lithium. And so if you can think about all of those inputs just to the EV or the electrification of the economy, if you will, there's a way that you can incorporate that into an energy transition strategy that's complementary to some of those renewable energy investments, as well as, in theory, some of those energy infrastructure investments and legacy energy investments. So much to discuss here, Paul. One final question before you take off. Tax loss harvesting is an investment strategy designed to reduce the bite of taxes. And this year's underperformance of certain areas like bonds and real estate might make them tax loss candidates. So what should investors be looking at and how can ETFs help with tax loss harvesting? So I think when, when you think about a year like 2023 and the S&P 500 is now up 7.5% as of the end of last week, it was up as much as 20%. You probably think to yourself, well, the market's been ripping. I've got really strong performance across many of my asset classes. The truth is, is that there's more than half the stocks in the S&P 500 are down this year. More than half the stocks in the Russell 1000 are down this year. And so for single stock investors in particular, ETFs and maybe sector ETFs or specific exposures like those in energy infrastructure or real estate portfolio can allow people to generate taxable losses in individual stock positions that are down for the year and replace them with exposures that not only include in many cases the company that they originally invested in, but importantly, exposure to the sector that they were investing in and all else equal, people are well off diversifying away from the idiosyncratic or stock-specific risk that they take on when they pick individual stocks by investing in a diversified ETF, whether it's the sector or thematic or industry-level ETF. And so the, the challenge, of course, is not going too far down the path of talking about tax guidance, but at a high-level understanding that ETFs typically see massive activity in the fourth quarter and in the first quarter because people are often switching between different ETFs in order to generate tax losses or pivoting between individual stock positions and diversified stock portfolios in the form of ETFs as a way to harvest losses at year-end to perhaps offset gains they may have elsewhere in their portfolio or in their financial picture. Paul, thank you. As usual, you're a wealth of information. It's always great to see you. 
Yeah, likewise. Thank you, Dahlia. Have a great day. Be sure to visit alpsfunds.com to learn more about the ETF lineup at SSNC Alps Advisors. I'm Thalia Hayden with ETF Guide. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.